Hello, everyone, and welcome to season three of the TMI podcast. I am your host, Ashley Rocca-Priori, and my co-host for today... I'm Alex Hamrick. So like I said, we are officially in season three, which is all about methods. And before you get scared and turn this off, hear me out. One of the things that we are being pushed to do more of as doc students is learn new innovative methods that can help us get published. But it's really hard to figure out where to find that information on these new methods. So we thought that the TMI podcast was a great opportunity to bring in faculty members that are really well versed in new and innovative methods, data sets, ways of learning and building these toolboxes that we need to publish. So the next three episodes will all be about different ways to build your method toolbox. And to kick us off for the first episode of season three, we thought it would be great to talk about new methods in entrepreneurship research. So for today's episode, we have Maureen Levesque with us from York University. I may be biased since Maureen's research topic is something that I'm interested in, but her research is fascinating mainly because she uses really cool and interesting methods that we don't see a lot of in entrepreneurship research. I'm talking math modeling, simulations, stuff that once you hear this episode and you hear about her math background, seems a little bit hard to learn about. However, Morin gives us really, really good advice on where to gain these skill sets, especially in smaller schools that may not have the access to classes and ways to learn that some bigger state universities might have. If you don't know anything about Maureen's research, she looks at how entrepreneurs make decisions. And she's been published in top management journals like Journal of Management, SMJ, as well as our top entrepreneurship journals like Journal of Business Mentoring, ETP, and SEJ. So without further ado, we welcome Maureen to this episode and are really excited to hear what she has to say. We start every episode with a, uh, like an icebreaker question. Um, so season three, since I highly doubt most of us when we were kids would have ever thought that we would be doing any sort of math or modeling as our career. When you were a kid, what was your dream job? I was prepared for the old one, but, <laughs> oh, I wanted to be a professor, but, but not understanding what it meant at the university level. So I was teaching all the time. So that's, I don't ask me why, but that's what I wanted to do. So it ended up working pretty well for me, uh, but I wanted to be, I, want, I wanted to teach. You, so wait, did you, you knew you wanted to teach when you were younger? Was it a different grade level or was there a particular subject you wanted to teach? It was. So basically, um, when I grew up, I had, I had a, a, an older brother. My brother didn't like my teaching, but we also had uh, some uh, foster, uh, our family had a foster uh, child. We had two actually. And one of them was younger than me and I would teach him whatever I could. And uh, it was interesting because, you know, you're a kid, right? So I would teach whatever I was learning at school, right? And he was three years younger, so that worked pretty well. But my, my deal was, and I learned that, that if you want people to come and participate, you've got to have food for them or something that will attract them. So I remember that I had my little uh, tea set 
and my mom would uh, give me Kool-Aid and I would reduce it as much as you can because I wanted it to last, right? And then, and then his name was Jean-Francois and Jean-Francois would always be there because he would have his uh, highly reduced Kool-Aid. So whether or not he was listening to me, I'm not sure, but he was always there and I could talk and there was a presence there. So I was not doing it with my dolls, which is interesting, but I was doing it with my, uh, my younger brother. You know, now I continue, right? In class, my students get them to participate. Now it's hard online. So Zoom has kind of, uh, I wanted to use the word screw this up. If I can, if I say so, if I may say so, but uh, I bring them chocolate. Every time I ask a question in class, you would see, you, you, you should see the participation. And that goes from undergrads, MBAs to executive, even the executive play that game. So see, it started very young and I have always been doing this and it works. I love it. So it's kind of to kick us off. We know that you've always wanted to be a professor, but how did you get to this point of your career? What led to you uh, deciding to get the PhD? Since you could teach with any grade if you wanted to before that, how did you know you wanted to do this exact career you're in now? Yeah, um, well, I, I studied, so I was doing good in math at high school. And so of course I chose to do a bachelor in math. And uh, with a bachelor in math, um, well, you kind of, cannot do very much with this. So I said, okay, I'm going to do a master in math. And even with a master in math, um, you cannot, in a master in statistics, back then I could go work for uh, Statistic Quebec, or I guess Statistic Canada, although I didn't speak English. So that was a bit of a, of an issue, but Statistic Quebec was interested in people who could do statistics. But the thing is, I had chosen math, not statistics. So it was a little bit, I was not as good with regression as I should have been, let's say. But what happened is I was fortunate uh, uh, to be able to teach during my master. So teach calculus, for example. I remember having a class of 150 students from uh, who were studying uh, basically uh, uh, computer science and they needed to, of course, uh, learn calculus. And so I started uh, this, I was doing very good in the classroom because again, I, I wanted to teach. Then eventually the business school was looking for people to teach um, operations and also to teach statistics. And by that time I was pretty good with my basic statistics. Um, and then they basically um, hire me at the business school but it was someone without a PhD, right? So you're on contract and, and I was doing very good. I was teaching eight courses a year. Um, of course, some were the same, right? That I was repeating one semester to the next. And then five years, so they could only renew the contract four times, so do five years. And they said, look, we really much, we would love to keep you and that you have a full-time faculty position. So we're gonna sponsor you to do your PhD. And the deal was that go do it in English. And I didn't speak English, uh, right? So I was back then, I guess, almost 30. And they said, go do it in English because if you want to learn English and you want to publish you know, in the right journals, 
Um, so that's how, so I was sponsored. Uh, so basically they sponsored um, everything. So they would pay for my um, fees for the PhD. So for the university it was great. They didn't need to give me money. And it accumulated to about $100,000. But the funny part is that a year before I graduated, they kind of contacted me and they said, we may not have a position for you. And the deal was that if they don't have a position for me, I don't need to reimburse the money and I can go wherever I want. Otherwise, if I don't go back, I reimburse the money, right? Or I go back for a certain number of years. Well, um, then I went on the job market, right? Because I wanted a job and I ended up doing not too bad on the job market. But once I was ready, they said, oh, now we have a job for you. And there we go. The $100,000 had to go back. But, you know, that was fine because it was great to have the opportunity to be a PhD student without having to worry about money. So it's been a great adventure. That's an incredible story. So starting broad um, with a little bit of what we talked about earlier uh, and building one's methodological skills or skills with mathematical, mathematical modeling, what is your biggest, biggest advice for doctoral students to learn new methods or hone in on those skills and continue building those skills throughout the rest of our um, career as a junior faculty and so on. I, I always tell one thing to my doctoral students to take advantage of what they know and what they're good at. So although I was not, when I did my bachelor, I was not the best, like I didn't have all the A pluses in my math courses. I had two, two classmates that were way uh, ahead of me. But because of all this training, I, I always tell my PhD student, whatever is your training, and it could be uh, industry-based. It could be if they've done a master that they have used a method. It could be what their bachelor has been to. I always tell, tell them, take advantage of your strength. If it's from psychology, fine. If it's from math, fine. If it's from physics, take advantage of that to basically build your research portfolio. And so it applies in methods if you are trained in methods, like I was. It also applies if you are trained not necessarily in methods. But it's if but no matter what, once you do a PhD, you will have to deal with some of these methods. So if you have no background whatsoever, of course, I think the first step is surely to not be shy to take uh, courses in, in, in statistics, because I, I think no matter what, you will always have a situation where you will have to analyze data. That being, especially nowadays, right, with all the data that is out there, and especially more so now because it seems that doctoral students, unlike my time, uh, have to show that they can use more than one method. And, and you know, by the way, you, you use the word method. And it's actually, we always have to keep in mind that it's, it's so it's interesting because method can be interpreted in very different ways. Um, in the method that you do research to build theory, but there's also the method that you do to test theory, right? So we have to think in terms of method more generally. And this, so 
The other thing uh, that, and I hope now the courses are changed uh, wherever you may be. For example, at our school, of course, what came very popular for master students is to uh, do business analytics, right? And, and so that if, if you are at an institution where they have masters in business analytics as a PhD student, don't be shy to take these master courses because they probably won't be offered at the PhD level. That's always a bit of an issue, right? Unless you have a huge PhD program. Also, what, one thing that my school is great at, especially my colleagues from a, a marketing, qualitative research method. But there has been a surge now and big appreciation for qualitative research method. And so again, that could be another option. Almost all of our students here, they take a qualitative research course. And I wish I had, to be honest, I think it would be so nice to complement that with my math because I'm not too sure how to put that together, but, but I wish I had. So um, that's, again, you, you have to go along with what is offered at your university, but I will say now we're very fortunate because COVID has had very negative uh, consequences, but I see all the time now these online seminars that you can take to learn about various research methods. So certain schools have like tons of resources for their PhD students. Some other people at smaller schools don't have these other, like a full engineering school, for example. How do you, what do you recommend for these people? Where do, where do they go to get this knowledge when it's not already there at their own home university? Yeah, you're asking a very good question because even at our university, because we're in a big cities, right? Many of our students will also take courses at the University of Toronto, for example, or they can even go, go to Waterloo if there is something. So that's part of the agreement. Um, must be surely within the province. And so that's a very, very good question. So what, what I will say, I think I'll come back to a comment I made earlier is uh, one of the more positive consequences uh, of, of uh, COVID is that now everyone knows how to deal with Zoom. Everyone has been in one way or another forcing himself or herself to learn without needing to be in the classroom, right? So uh, I, I think all the new PhD students surely have had to face that. So I think we can take advantage of that. And uh, I, what I see, some, some of these are free, some you have to pay. Of course, if the resources are limited at the school, then now you're not as, good, uh, as, as much in a good shape. But that's what I surely would take advantage of because I see it quite often now coming. And I think uh, uh, this is something you were saying that the Academy of Management was asking uh, the students to have uh, suggestions on what to do. So someone like yourself, for example, Ashley, you said that you took a, a minor in a research method. This is something that perhaps through the Academy, uh, the Academy of Management and the Entrepreneurship Division that could be perhaps something to put forth mm -hmm. as a new initiative. And I can tell you, some of the faculties would be very happy to join you 
And so some of the teaching perhaps could be done by you because you've learned it, you use it in your, uh, in, in your papers that you are developing for your dissertation. But I would think that some faculty would be very happy to join and then um, present some of these methods and do it online. And that would be, you know, just, we're an amazing group, right, in entrepreneurship. People are amazingly friendly. And of course they would do it and it wouldn't cost anything. So that could be something to think about if, especially if it's important and you judge important to help these doctoral students who are from smaller school. A lot of your work in entrepreneurship specifically talks about the importance of improving the methods we're using in entrepreneurship research. And we've talked about this theory building and theory testing and how you can do both. Um, I think you guys label that as the entrepreneurial zone. What is your biggest takeaway for individuals? And do you have any recommendations for pieces that have started the uses that we can look to or, or listeners can look to to see how can we start to try and incorporate in our research? What I would encourage you to do is I think the entrepreneurial zone to come back to that paper is a very uh, risky one for now because we as a field, as scholars, need to learn how to be able to evaluate these different methods that are coming to us and in mass. So that's why I'm thinking maybe one step, and especially as a PhD student, might be better that either you use them to build theory or you use them to test theory, right? Just start that way. And then eventually as we build, uh, and I, as we build as a community and we have reviewers that can appreciate, then we can try to do both. And both, I think it will be obviously a multi-method papers with, with a lot of appendices that you were gonna have to put in a supplement to explain everything, but it will be amazingly rich. And maybe this is something for dissertation actually, that I think that should be, that could be something beautiful, right? That you have your three main papers. I, I like dissertations that are kind of essays because it gives a chance for the students to, to try to submit papers and perhaps have a pub uh, for the time to go to the job market. So introduction, conclusion, and three major papers. But there could be one where you use these methods. And again, some people even think of regression as being a form of machine learning, right? It doesn't need to be super sophisticated. One you use to build some theory, one you use to test some theory, and then there is a way to the third paper that you can do both. So that could be, I think that could be beautiful. You would show that, hey, I'm pretty good with um, methods because now I know how to use one of them to test theory. I know how to use one of them to build theory. And then I, use, I, I know also how to combine it. I think it would be so beautiful. So one of the things I, I, I agree, I think multi, I think not only multiple essays are important in a dissertation, but multiple methods within those different essays. You've mentioned also in publications that more uh, journals are wanting multi-methods and how business analytics and machine learning and AI are useful. How do you think 
PhD students should go about deciding which methods to use for theirs? Should they choose one and excel at it? Should they learn about a couple of different ones and choose the one they find most interesting? Look at the literature, like how do they get started on which ones to put in their toolbox? So I, I, I need to kind of invert your question. And it's something I learned as, um, as a PhD student. <clears throat> methods are tools, right? That being modeling methods or statistical methods or whatever, right? So they're tools. And tools don't apply to, uh, specific tools do not apply to all the building that you want to do. So in our case, if you choose a tool, but it doesn't match with the research question you want to address, you're gonna be in trouble, right? And so typically it's better to go the other way around. What is it that I want to research and how do I want to look at it, right? And from there, to choose the best tool that can address your, your research questions or questions, right? If you have three essays, you may have an overarching question and then have one more specific for each. So I think you have to be careful to say, I'm gonna choose to, 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 to learn this uh, because you may be stuck in not being able to use that tool to address the research question. If some students come, so I didn't come with a research question when I started my PhD. So I think if you don't come with a research question already, then maybe you can pick a method that you see as attractive. But if you already have a research question or given topics you want to look at, just try to think at the same time if I go with this research method, if I learn more and more about this, would that be beneficial? And the courses in university are designed to give you a little bit of variation, right? So, but if you want to specialize in one, then start thinking about what is it that you want to look at? And then, then you can dig in this research method. Yes, makes a ton of sense. So <clears throat> to, kind of close out our methods related questions over just overarching what do you think is the biggest opportunity for new or advanced methods in entrepreneurship research currently whether it's time it takes time into account process methods longitudinal data esm ai what do you think is the biggest opportunity right now yeah well I'm, I'm probably biased, right? Because of course uh, the, the, the editorial I wrote and uh, uh, surely would, would, would tell you whatever may be associated with taking advantage of artificial intelligence and especially um, that being a software, but the, 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 the kind of uh, ready to use, if I may call it this way, ready to use, uh, uh, black box uh, could be very nice to take advantage of. You, but you have to uh, also be careful because if, if, if it is kind of a black box method, you need to know what, what it can spit out in, in the sense of 
will it give me the type of information that I want? And, and so I, 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 I hope that um, more and more universities will start to help doctoral students to uh, learn about these methods. And, and, but I don't think we're there yet, uh, unless, uh, unless you say otherwise, I don't think you're, we're there yet. Like my doctoral student is taking a course on, on machine learning, but, but I'm pretty sure it's not like all these beautiful diverse methods that are there that don't worry about the black box, we'll explain to you what it needs as input and what it provides as output. Does it work for the research question you're looking at? or giving you examples, especially as a first year student. I think that would be lovely to be able to develop courses like this. And we're not there yet. Maybe there is some, again, uh, our, our um, uh, business analytic uh, master uh, has, and has some courses that may be in this direction. I'm not teaching in it. We also have now um, a master of management in AI. And so the students are learning how to manage AI. And I suspect some of them are also the tool and how you can do that. Uh, you can play with it. And at the academy, every time I go to the academy, every year there is something talking. Uh, I, I remember, uh, well, that, again, COVID, now I stopped that because I was there in person. So that must have been two, two years ago, just before COVID. There was a beautiful session uh, talking about how they have taken advantage of these methods to do really cool research. And it was, uh, I think it was uh, either part of the strategic, uh, strategic group, uh, if not one of the organizational group. And it was beautiful to see what people could do with that. So it may be, uh, uh, if, if there are interests in the students, uh, in some of the students, I would encourage them to look at some papers and see what they did and what they used. That could be a really cool start and so when you see what they do in a paper and the method that they use, that can help you also to think about what your research question might be. You may have a, a field of interest, but not a research question. And so again, we're cheating a little bit. I love this method. I think I can learn it. And then I can adapt my research question to it. Even though we're cheating, we're supposed to do the other way around, get the tool to the research question. But hey, it has served me well, so I should not, you know. But again, I was told as a student, no, 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 no get the research question and then you figure out the tool so no it's a great answer really really helpful uh last question for you is same one we always ask and i think it's more self-reflective than anything but if you could knowing what you know now after you've had all this experience in your career so far what advice do you wish you had when you first started the phd program that's a tough question. And maybe because it has been such a long time. I, I would say, again, it's, it's a tough question. And uh, perhaps what would have uh, helped me, especially not being English speaking, to be a little bit more pushed into um, uh, taking like writing courses. I think this would, and, and, and not only not being English speaking, even in French, I didn't write that well because 
I mean, I didn't make any um, spelling mistake. I was very good that way. But grammar, I was not that strong. And partially because I was doing math, right? So I was not writing very much. So I think that would have been good. All that I had is my uh, one of my co-supervisors. He was, he was wonderful. He said, uh, Moran, before you give me something on paper, why don't you ask your husband to read it first? And my husband, well, is still, but I married an American. And so, and so <laughs> this, is the, this is all he asked. But I think he, he should have say, take writing courses. They, they you know, learn how to write because in the end, um, our job as academic is about writing, right? If you look at everything, it's about writing. Those who write beautiful stories publish their papers. Those who know how to write. So I remember, I know a few people that uh, before they started their PhD, they basically were editors like working at uh, for magazines and they know how to write a story and they have done very well with their career, right? Um, so uh, that's, I think, what I would have liked to be pushed a little bit more to do. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. And, and I, it's so different, the type of methods that you use. So hearing it from your perspective of why you chose them and why you recommend them, I think is gonna be really valuable to the people that listen to the podcast. Well, you're so welcome, and I'm so glad to, to have met you as well. Hopefully, we'll see each other at the Academy. I'm just about to book my hotel because we got the email that the hotel is not available. So, uh, and hopefully, COVID won't stop us to be able to be there in person. So, that would be lovely. So, if, you know, if you see me or you want us beforehand to um, schedule something, to have a glass of wine, or I would... That would be very lovely. So. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you both so much. And have a lovely remaining of the day. So we want to say a big thanks to Morin for being here with us today. And a big thanks to all of you for listening to this first episode of season three. As usual, if you have any ideas, suggestions, questions for our guests that you'd like us to include, please send us an email at tmientpod at gmail.com. And we look forward to reading those for future episodes. Until next time.